So when you had to make that phone call, yeah, who did you call? I called my dad uh, right away, and he said uh, he he said he thought something was up because my car had gotten back from work, but I was nowhere in the house. What did you say? Uh, I said, Dad, I'm in trouble, and uh, I've been arrested, and uh, you know I need you to call Sal, who's my best friend, who's also a criminal defense attorney. I almost can't trust my baser thinking. The, the type of thoughts that I have when I wake up or when I'm going to bed and I'm really alone, those are a lot of the thoughts that I lived with for 30 years. And they know me really well. So, like, what are some of those thoughts? Ah, uh, God. Um, the people who are your friends are just doing so to, like, be, uh, you know, surface-level friend, like, friendly and, mm. and nice. And they don't actually want to be around you any longer than they have to to put up that facade. Mm. Uh, or you don't have value. Mm. Uh, whether it's value as a friend or a boyfriend or an employee um, whatever it might be. Those are just like my base level thoughts. That's like how, that's how I walked around for 30 years. I would lie awake at night thinking I should have worn the red shirt. And if I had worn the red shirt, that girl would have noticed me over there because she was wearing a red shirt too. And then she would have invited me to her Thursday night soiree. Mm -hmm. And then I would have been able to wear those specific pants that I was wearing today. And I wouldn't have looked like an idiot because the fashion would have worked out. And I would have met my girlfriend and then all of a sudden I'm 80 and I'm on a porch and I've got my wife and family and kids. Like there's no, there's no like, I don't know, there's no off button to that right? for me. So that's a good segue. So because you're, you're, you have in your mind like an imaginary fork in the road moment. Like had A and B happened, I'd be white picket fencing with her at, at 80. But in real life. What are when you think about like those moments where it could have gone one way or another, if I chose A or instead of B, if this had happened, you know, because of one inch was missed, fork in the road moments, which one comes to mind? So I'm very grateful that the one that comes to mind is the one that got me on the path that I'm on today. It was um, September 28th, 2019. I had been arrested the night before, so September 27th. Spent the night withdrawing on heroin in a- What did you get arrested for? Selling heroin to undercover police officers. But I didn't know I was being charged with that at the time. So, I mean, for for months, I had been working at a financial firm. The only reason that I was qualified enough to get a job at this firm was that one of the partners liked the drugs that I was able to procure mm. for him and a few of the other guys. Uh, one of the guys at the firm got in trouble with the DEA. Part of his plea deal was to set up two people. Um, and so this was a gang unit set up on Long Island of police officers, like a police gang unit specifically targeting heroin trafficking. Okay. And so that was their sole purpose. They, they didn't care about anything else. And if they got you on something, they were just attempting to kind of channel that way. So this guy had, knew that I would, you know, kind of go out and, go to different parts of the city and I, I could, I wasn't selling like on the street corner, but I could procure for myself and others. So he asked me to meet a few guys. And so I met them once or twice. And it's funny, I was a dealer for a long time. Mm. And in my 10 or 15 years where um, 
I had varying degrees of, of dealing success in terms of small scale, large scale. I have never once had a deal go this way where the car pulled up into the parking lot and actually, you know, when you see cops on the side of a highway and they're both facing different ways mm-hmm. so that the front windows can talk to each other, right. that was how this guy pulled up to me. And I had a moment where I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was like, are you going to get in? And he was like, no, I'm good. And I just, I brushed it aside and I went ahead. But so it turns out that guy, and and, and I met him a few more times, was an undercover. Um so I was pulling into my uh, my parents' house where I was living at the time after Friday after work and after having just copped what I needed for the long weekend. And I was very excited to make a pasta sauce for my grandma and my dad and get really high and, and enjoy myself. Mm. Um, so you're like I, 25, No, this, is, this was four years ago. So you're- I'm 30. Uh, you're, got it. I'm, I'm going to be 34 next Tuesday. Got it. So you're 30. Got it. Got yeah, it. yeah. So I'm 30 years old, a um, few months past 30. And uh, so I pull into my parents' driveway, and uh, I get a knock on my on my window. And uh, I, I look to the left, and it's a uh, a teenage mutant ninja turtle T-shirt and a detective's badge, and that's it. The guy was just in jeans and a T-shirt, and and I see the gun holstered right there, and I knew like I was I was like, this is it. I'm I'm done. Why do you think he didn't bag you right then and there? Why did he wait till you went home? Um, I think that they wanted to catch me off guard. These were detectives. This wasn't like a a street cop that, that saw me doing something illegal on the street. These guys knew me. They, they were following me. They had caught sight of my car. They knew my location in, in some way or shape or form. Um, they were waiting for me to kind of feel like I was safe and home and just pick me up. Um, and it's funny, I felt relief in that cop car. I felt well when you when that happened and you obviously your your family was home mm-hmm. so they watched you get handcuffed and taken out they did it so quickly that nobody saw my dad came back from a jog I actually saw him while I was a few blocks away and my dad was jogging and you know the windows are tinted in the unmarked van right um and he you know he didn't see me no why would you be relieved uh because I was exhausted I was exhausted of withdrawing all the time of the life that I was living, of my manipulation, my lying. Like for months I had cried to myself in the mirror being like, why can't you stop this? And then at the same time pouring drugs out and snorting them because I had no other solution. I had no other option. It didn't feel like life was going anywhere for me other than like exactly where I was. And uh, it was it was pretty miserable, you know? So I want to, I'll pause there. I obviously want to get back to the story, but you know, you're in misery and I felt that too, of course, like anyone that used opiates knows how it ends. Like it never ends well for us and it ends in horrible withdrawals. And if this, it, there's so many questions you can go down, but first, why do you think when people would say to you, like, why can't you just stop? Well, like who wants to be miserable, right? But yeah, we do it again and again. So what would you say to that? So I've heard talks on this side of how to perceive addiction and alcoholism, and I I think it has a lot of merit. And the the concept is not to actually look at the negatives that addiction causes. So rather than looking at, oh, it made that person a liar, it made that person a thief, it made that person cheat on their partner or – you know, become an untrustworthy family member, look at the things that it 
kind of gave mm-hmm. in a positive way. And so for me, it gave me a perceived sense of calm. It allowed me to feel safe and comforted. I had a pretty, I didn't have a traumatic childhood, at least from a comparative standpoint. I know and knew people um, that had significant traumas, whether it was directed at them from their parents or not, right? Like people who actually experienced trauma early. And I don't think I experienced it, but my family didn't know calmness. Um, my mom grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China, mm-hmm. uh, where they would drag people out on the street and kill them, just you know, for expressing themselves. The dictatorship was that way. Um, and my dad was an only child uh, of a mother who had kind of out of wedlock had him, and and then you know his dad passed away at two. So, how did your parents link up? Um, my dad was at Columbia. My mom was at NYU, and you know she was studying dance, and he was studying law, and they met at a party, mm. and then they had me. Um, and it, and it, and in a lot of ways, it just life just kind of happened to them, I think. And in the '80s and early '90s, you you go with it. Um, there wasn't as much of an option. I think this all makes sense now. You have Chinese mom. You're very good at the piano. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's direct correlation. There was there, there were two routes the, as a son that I was going to be. It was either going to be piano uh, or mathematical right. science, and and I didn't have those natural tendencies uh, in math, but I had them in music. So now the stereotype is well, listen, no parent is fine with their kid getting hauled away for heroin Mm -hmm. but the stereotype says that the chinese mother is really not okay with that oh yeah uh when i did get all my charges dropped and uh my record expunged she asked to make a statement to the judge in front of the courtroom and i was like oh my god what is she about to say and she basically just wholeheartedly thanked the judge and said that if this had happened to me in china they would have killed me they would have just executed me there is no kind of court system that allows for drug diversion. Um, and I can't speak highly enough of the drug diversion program that I got into, of the court system once I stopped lying. What is a drug diversion program? So essentially they divert your criminal charge into the hands of medical professionals. Okay. So you're, you're, you have to meet a few thresholds in order to be accepted, one being a nonviolent crime, uh, second being something drug related. Um, and third, uh, either, um, either like no previous intense records already, um, or not having gone through it in the past. Right. So I, I hit all of the, but that doesn't mean that you're guaranteed. Right. What, um, what was the alternative? I mean, jail's the alternative. The, I was but... facing four to seven years. That was what I was being charged. And with. did they want, I mean, you were a piece of a, what seemed like a broader sort of thing. Yeah. Like you said, so did they want you to then turn they they didn't because um, and I, I've done a little bit of thought around this. I don't know the exact answer, but in order to go into the diversion program, you have to plead guilty. Mm. So I believe my guilty plea appeased their numbers for that year, and I think that that's that that was that closed the case from from that gang unit right. on caring about whether I participated or not in anything further. They got the guilty with their charge. So for eighteen months, I was a guilty felon. Walking around. Was your, you know, my friend is going through this now where he, story very similar to yours, sold cocaine to the wrong person. Mm-hmm. If you Google him, it's in the West Palm Beach Post, you know, one of these really local papers, his name, his charge, and his picture. 
And so you can imagine when he goes and applies for jobs, it's a real problem. Yeah. Did you have this issue? So um, personally, I uh, avoided the workplace for the first eight or nine months when I was getting sober. And uh, part of a lot of it was fear. I was scared I wouldn't be accepted. I was scared of that exact situation, people Googling me and, and finding out and, and mocking me or laughing me at me. But also part of it was I felt that for years, not just months that I had been doing that specific drug, but years, I had been underqualifying myself for the workplace. Uh, and I'm, I mean that by I had just been avoiding work. And so I didn't actually feel like I could add value yet. I mm -hmm. needed to first understand who I was, understand and trust my own ability to show up for work on time. And so I did what, uh, you know, I got a sponsor right at the beginning. And what his suggestion was, is to get a sober job. I but what about like literally the, the problem of being Googleable? Yeah. Like, is, like if I Googled your name, does that charge come up right now? Um, you know, I've actually never done it. <laughs> you want to do it right now? <laughs> we'll do it later. We'll do it later. <laughs> um, you know, I've never done it. And uh, I did have that fear when I was, I got, so I have a job now at a very public company. Okay. And they did do background checks and I had to do it with a third party. And I was scared throughout that whole process. But, you know. Did you get in front of it or you were just. Yeah, of course. You so did. you tell them, hey, you're I told them this. everything. Yeah. yeah. I told. So I, uh, I have the current position I'm in because of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a direct correlation, right? Like I. I did the work, sure, but the, the rooms of AA, because I showed up as a fellow for over a year and started doing the steps and, and was really a, a trustworthy member of this program, another fellow saw that I was looking for a job and knew my background in my industry, and he connected me with someone who's my current boss's boss. And I was really nervous getting on a first call with this guy. It's a networking call with someone in, an in, in my industry at basically one of the top three firms in my field mm. and uh i'm i'm going into this call really nervous and really scared and um i was suggested to just be fully honest because this is someone who's in the same program as me and and there's like that bond that connects you and me the bond that connects the other greater secret society that we're in and for us to be i mentioned it earlier but rigorously honest i think is the only way to kind of combat that fear of I'm not going to be liked or I'm going to be rejected, right? If I can be fully honest, at least I know if something bad happens, I did my best and I put myself forward and I wasn't led by fear. Mm -hmm. um, and in my experience so far in the last four years, almost every time that I've led that way, the results have either been positive or I've been able to walk through the negative situation with like a peaceful sense of calm i want to go back to the beginning because we can't the most important thing that i think that if like someone that's new that's listening and i think a lot of new from the emails i get it's a lot of people in like their first 90 is like they want to identify with the addiction part mm -hmm. so before we can get addicted we have to understand like what made it so good and you and you you talked about that like the sense of calm mm -hmm. heroin is not a social drug mm -mm. right so what leads to that yeah so, I mean, money, <laughs> money, right? I was doing uh, opiates and pills that I got from prescriptions first. Right. That was lack of know, money. It was, it was, yeah, it, it was the money driver that made me say, yeah, I can get this for one tenth the price and it'll quote unquote get me, you know, 10 times higher. Sure, of course. Where did you grow up? 
Uh, I grew up on Long Island. Okay. Yeah. Um, spent the first 10 years of my life in Manhattan on the Upper West Side, and then my parents moved out to Long Island. And how did you – then we'll work our way back. Like how did the pills first? The pills for me came in through like a dental procedure. Yeah. Which I was amazed. I was like, oh, my God, I want to feel like this all the time. Right. That right. was it. So I broke my collarbone snowboarding. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know what they were giving me. I didn't even understand a painkiller could be a drug. Like anything out of a bottle to me wasn't a drug. Same. It was just a me medicine, right? And so I took the painkillers that night. My dad picked up Arby's on the long drive from the hospital up near Hunter Mountain back to Long Island. And I just remember looking down at this Arby's sandwich and I took a bite and I said to myself, this is the greatest sandwich on the face of the planet. Right. And that was that was my like, oh, wow, this is this is like the, the way I want to feel all the mm -hmm. time. Um, and then I herniated my disc in my back. So I had surgery when I was 20 and they gave me pills again and I started abusing them, but um, not not in a way that didn't feel like I was managing it, didn't feel like I was out of control. I would just take what. It. What does abusing look like? Uh, instead of taking one every eight hours, I would take like you know four to six, yeah, you yeah. know, at one time, and then wait a day or two so I could take another larger amount at one time. Right, right. Um, and I was partying a lot at that time, age. I was twenty one, twenty two. I was in college. Like I was drinking and doing cocaine and taking acid and shrooms. So. I, my mind wasn't totally hooked on every day, every moment I need to take an opiate. For me, it was in the, I mean, we're very similar and it was more like, that would be nice, right? If someone had it for sure, right? procuring it was difficult, yeah. right? It was a little tricky and money, right? Like yeah. I didn't, my money was going to other drugs. Like I was smoking a lot of weed, like it was much tamer. And it wasn't until my like mid to late twenties in Manhattan when suddenly like it was very easy to get. Mm. And again, I really didn't associate it. Like the opiate epidemic wasn't a thing yet, right? Yeah. Like there, like we were in the middle of it, right. but it hadn't been labeled yet. And in my mind, like you said, like it's medicine. I know it's not the best thing for me, but it, I'll, I'll put it in the same category as smoking weed. I'm like, mm -hmm. whatever. And if everyone knew about this, they'd be doing it too. Yeah. So eventually it all accelerates like uh, listen i know the deal it's one pill goes to two two goes to four four goes to eight then heroin right which is a leap right did you ever shoot yeah oh yeah intravenous for sure um that was it was always towards the end uh meaning the end of i had two main stoppage points <laughs> in my life one was rehab at 21 years old mm -hmm. um i had totaled my dad's car uh, I fell asleep in a business meeting with the uh, head of the business school, the dean of my college, and my dad. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they drug tested me because a student at 21 shouldn't be falling asleep in a 3 p.m. Wednesday meeting with the head of the school. And I uh, came up for basically every drug you can think of besides meth at that time. Were, but they were – was your dad surprised? Uh, yeah, he was very surprised. He was, he was really shocked. He didn't really know what to do. Um, so they pulled me out of school. I went to a rehab treatment. Um, but for, you know, a month or two before that, I was shooting it up. And for me, it was a girlfriend that showed me how to do it. Um, what's the difference? As someone who's never shot up before, what's the difference in feeling between mm -hmm. eating, snorting an Oxycontin and, and, sh and shooting heroin? I can get real descriptive. When, when you uh, push down on that button, 
right? Yeah. Uh, it's an it's an incredible feeling to know that that button has that much power, and and once you feel it, you know what that power is. But when you push down on that button, for me, I felt the warm tingles going from I did it on my left arm, warm warm tingles creeping up my arm, up to my shoulder, and the moment it hit my chest and my heart, I could feel that first heartbeat where it pumped the blood to every inch of my body. Um, and each heartbeat was more and more pumps of that calm, happy, pleasurable feeling. And I describe it this way. When you're on the beach and you get picked up by a wave and you have no control, it's a mm-hmm. big wave and you're getting picked up and slammed down and you can't breathe and you're just getting ragdolled by the wave. It felt like that, but with no pain and you could breathe. And I remember lying down on the bed just feeling those waves of pleasure, of that exact pleasure that I knew hitting me and hitting me and hitting me. And it was euphoric. And how long does that last? You know, I can't remember. Anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes the first time all the way down to like, you know, you, you're you're pushing the needle down and you're, you're looking like, for the happened? next one. Yeah. And, and you're like, where is it, right? And and that feeling I just used to describe, that wave, the, mm. the like pure bliss of like pushing, I don't think I felt that ever other than that first time. That's right. how I first describe it. And that's the only instance in my mind I can remember feeling that. And any other time it was operational. Isn't it crazy like when you think about the way that something looks on the outside and feels on the inside when you see people on opiates or on heroin or you see them on new york city or on fentanyl all the time you're like that looks beyond horrible Mm -hmm. beyond horrible to see someone laying in a bed on heroin you're like oh my god like i'm so sorry (laughs) but inside this person is in bliss absolute bliss the craziest feelings um by the way like like you said you you when they when they took you away you no one noticed so when you had to make that phone call yeah who did you call i called my dad uh right away and he said he he said he thought something was up because my car had gotten back from work but i was nowhere in the house what did you say uh i said dad i'm in trouble and uh i've been arrested and uh you know i need you to call sal who's my best friend who's also a criminal defense attorney Mm. And uh, that was it. We kept it short. We kept right. it pretty much. And, and he had experienced troubles of mine in the past. And probably for the last year or two, he knew. It, well, because I had tried kind of outpatient programs to get sober, which didn't work. I brought fake piss in. He, he knew day. what? what He knew what was up. He, yeah. knew, he knew it wasn't a complete, complete shock. Um, yeah. So you get out. So, uh, well, I'm not out yet. I, I, I'm sitting there in the jail cell. Um Sweating, shitting, puking, ugly sight. And uh, I finished reading the packet they give you on how to be a good prisoner. Mm-hmm. And they actually give you a packet on it. And uh, I didn't know what else to read. So I started reading things that were scratched along the wall. And someone had scratched at some point, find God and you'll find peace. And I kind of rolled my eyes. I was not ready to find God. I didn't know how you find God. I didn't believe God did ever, ever did anything for me. And there was no point in that. But the second line I really resonated with, peace sounded really, really nice at that moment. And I knew I had not been living my life with any sense of peace. So at at that point, I just remember thinking like maybe God has something to do with peace and potentially I have to figure out how to get to that point. 
and AA didn't pop into my head or anything, but I knew just whatever the fuck I had been doing, the hedonistic voices that I had been listening to to try to micromanage every moment in my life. I, I now understand it as me trying to wrestle satisfaction out of life. And I just realized that that was wrong and that was not serving me. And that's, you know, sitting in a jail cell is where it got me. So when I came out, I went to a 28-day rehab program, detox first. When I got out of that program, they suggested I get to a meeting and I was ready. Uh, I was willing to kind of just listen to other people for the first time in my life and and try to trust. And so I went to a meeting uh, in the city, um, a meeting uh, on Perry Street, and uh, it was kind of hectic. It was kind of it was the Perry Street Clubhouse. The Perry Street Clubhouse. Okay. It was kind of hectic. Um, I remember kind of getting uh, hit on by a gay homeless man, and I thought, all right, this is AA. Like this is where I'm at. Right. But someone at that meeting, um, or maybe it was someone at the rehab that I had met, they they knew about this morning meeting um, that they were going to check out the next day. So I said, great, let's let's give that one a try. Like I'm 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 open for the ride, right? I didn't. That first meeting where away. you're hit on by the game homeless guy, and that meeting is not glamorous, even though it's not in a glamorous. glamorous neighborhood, which is ironic. Right. Um, that could have been a this isn't for me moment, or I'm better than Easily. this moment. Or I don't belong here. Easily. But your mindset was more, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready. Um, if I have to deal with that, it's better than what I put myself into one month prior. It's just clear, clear cut for me. Okay. It, it was clear cut. Um, so the next morning I went to a morning meeting and uh, it was everything that that previous meeting, meeting wasn't. It was in a brightly lit room with a chandelier. Uh, there were about 100 people at 7.15 a.m. on a Wednesday, middle of November. Um, everyone was happy. I just I kind of remember thinking, like, are these all counselors? Like, <laughs> there's no way. This is just a room full of drunks and addicts like me. And uh, I go to sit down, and the meeting starts. And about five or six minutes in, this isn't a, a suggestion for anyone to come late, but my friend came late. Um, and I see this girl kind of tagging along in the back uh, with her hood up. And uh, I'm like, holy shit, that's one of my ex-girlfriends. And uh, she sits down. We smile at each other. We, we go to catch up after the meeting. Um, and I didn't realize she had five or six years in sobriety. And we we actually dated the summer before she got sober. So <laughs> you can imagine how hectic that was. And I obviously continued on. Um, but I started putting things together where, you know, I, we stayed friends after the breakup. So two years later, I went and visited her in Miami with a bunch of other friends. And I do remember noticing that she wasn't drinking. And the only thought I could imagine at that time was she must be doing a skinny girl diet. Like the idea of social sobriety, actually being sober for your own mental health or physical health. Just, I, I wasn't in a place to understand it. Right. right? So we grabbed a coffee, we chatted. She said, oh my God, you're just like me after I told her my story and she hugged me. And I felt so accepted and so welcomed by the rooms of AA. And I felt like that. Did you raise your hand in that meeting? I don't think I did, no. Even to say, to count days? Oh yes, I raised my hand to count days. I, say, I didn't share for the first like probably two months. I was right. way too intimidated. I to mean, even the first time that I say I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. You can't believe you're even saying it. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit kind of out of body. It's surreal. For yeah. sure. For sure. Um, but I, I fully stand by I'm an alcoholic and an addict. You know, that's who I am. 
Um, and I say that so that no one comes into AA feeling as though they can't identify because they're an addict, maybe, right? Is there something from that first year that either you heard, that you saw on the walls, that you read in a book, that you really remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the trajectory of this disease relates to me with three M's. Magic, medicine, madness, right? So at first, my drug or alcohol or partying or that lifestyle was magical. Anytime I touched it, life was good. Things were great, and I could achieve things that I could not achieve without them. Magic, in, in magical ways. Eventually, it became my medicine. It became what I needed to go on a business deal or to travel, or it became literally what I needed to get out of my bed. Um, so it was the medicine that I thought was patching me up. And then at the end, it was just madness. There was nothing left in my life except madness. And it brought me through all three of those ends. And why did that hit home? Why did that hit so hard? Um, because I think that um, by admitting that it was magic, it was something I hadn't heard before. Previously, yeah. when there were issues, people are just quick to say, this is an issue. You've got a problem. You need to stop this. There's no benefit to it at all. And I hadn't heard yet people say, admittedly, these are fucking great. Yeah. And they probably were great and worked for you at a time for a time. So important and, to say, I think when anyone qualifies, you got to talk about the good times. Yeah. Because otherwise, why else would we have been there so long? Right. And the new person still thinks and remembers the good times. Oh, yeah. You know, what about um, you picked up a sponsor? Why did you choose that guy? So the friend that I mentioned who hugged me after that first meeting, she pulled him aside and said, hey, I, you know, I'd like you to meet Lawrence. Um, so he got my number. And his, his, his suggestion, others' suggestions, I can't remember who, but they were just like, get a, get a number at every meeting you go to. Try and get a new number, right? And I'm sitting across from one right now. Everyone's name is Mike or John or Adam because uh, I was only focusing on the guys in the beginning. Right. And uh, there were just so many after like even two or three weeks of meetings in my in my phone number, right? Because sometimes there would be multiple people putting their, their name in my phone from one meeting um, because I was open at that time, right? I was very much like anyone that's willing to be accepting of me and in my network right now, I'm, I've crawled in here. I've barely made it in. Um, so like help, please, if you can. So after every meeting, you must have been surrounded by three or four people. Yeah. Yeah, and I was open to chatting, yeah. and I didn't have a job, right. so I had time to fellowship, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so I had a lot of Joes and Mikes and Johns and Adams, and uh, my sponsor's uh, name is Unique. And so when I'd get a text or a check-in from some of these other guys, I couldn't remember their faces. I didn't know who or what I had talked to them about. But this guy, his name is so unique, I, I could actually hold for more than a week or two a, 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 con a, a connected storyline that I felt like this person was actually seeing me, hearing me, understanding where I was even five days previously and where I felt good today about something that maybe was an issue a week ago. Um, so he was the one I went to ask for about understanding what sponsorship was like. I actually did not ask him with the intent of saying, will you be my sponsor? I don't think I was ready for that. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to know like, hey, what is what is the situation? Like, what should I look for? What's going on? And at the end of that coffee, he was like, so you're going to do these few things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're going to, you know, start praying every morning and night. 
even if you don't believe it, just say these words, God, will you help keep me sober today? And at night, God, thank you for keeping me sober. And, uh, you know, previously when I had experienced those eight months of institutional sobriety, I remember thinking sobriety could probably be pretty good for me, but not if God has anything to do with it. And this time around, I said, there's going to be no obstacle in my way. And I, and if, if the, the word God has to, you know, be a part of it, so be it. And so then when believe. you meet someone and let's say you're dating someone and they come downstairs in the morning mm-hmm. and they see you and you're praying on the floor. Yeah. And they're like, I didn't know you prayed. You believe in God? Mm-hmm. What would you say? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's happened to me a few different times. And I don't try to push that on anyone, especially not someone I'm dating, um, because early at least. But I, I'm, I'm a very strong believer that like individuality and, and what works for one person doesn't have to necessarily work for everyone else. This is what works for me. And this is what worked for me. Um, and I got into one of the best relationships I've ever been in, in sobriety. Um, and we ended up living together. You know, we, we broke up last year. Um, but uh, it's because of this program and it's because of my own connection to God that I'm able to change and not be the that wolf that I allowed run my life for essentially 30 years. I'm going to play a little game for a second because we're it. getting close to the end. Um, every time I interview someone, I want to either do like a little role play or this is going to be a fill in the blank. Cool. Okay. Because you have, you'll have four years. Yeah. When? November 13. Okay. So fill in this blank. The more time that I get, the more or less blank. Can I choose the more or the less? That's what, That's yes. what you were saying? Yes. So the more time that I get, the more... I'm excited to let God and my life surprise me. I have consistently been surprised by this program. And pretty much every time that I lean into it, I heard this recently, if you want magical shit to happen, you got to do magical shit. And every time that I've done the magical shit, right? The hoiki, toiki, from the outsider's Mm -hmm. perspective, description of the hoiki, toiki, get on your knees and pray, write some things out. Um, you know, talk to some other people about other topics, um, pray for willingness, pray for action and, and then just like put it away. (laughs) It's, it works out better than I could have imagined. Next one. This is a two parter blank and blank are two either activities or areas of my life that often make me feel unsober, even though I'm not drinking. Hmm. Um, so the first one is gotta be my jeweling, my electronic cigarette. I, I, especially recently, since I've elevated to double jeweling, (laughs) where I have a Miley and a jewel pod, both hitting at the same time for flavor differential. One's for flavor. One's for that extra head kick. It's, it's fucked up. There's definitely some, some extra addiction in there. But I can tell there are times where right before I'm about to do something like get on a call that I'm nervous about, I have the camera off on Zoom right in the office um, and I'm, I'm hitting that thing mm. just to almost almost as if this thing is going to make me all right. And if I don't, then I'm not going to have a good call. That's a very addict connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one that makes me feel a bit unsober. Um, the second's got to be women still. Sex, like it's whether it is a coda thing, whether it's a sex love, 
I don't know what the rest of it, but slaw. What is it though? Is it the, cause it can take many forms. Totally. It can take the form of why hasn't she texted me back yet? Right. It can take the form of like sexual compulsion. Right. Right. What is it? For me, it is, so two of my big defects are um, fantasy and then manipulation. Okay. So if I create a fantasy, I manipulate the fucking shit out of reality to make sure that that fantasy becomes true. And most of the time that fantasy is never going to become true. So I just go further and further into manipulation. Is the fa- is the fantasy like, oh my God, I could totally see us living in Malibu someday? It either is that or the fantasy is we're going to be so casual that we're just going to hook up once a week and it's going to be perfect when we do and we're going to put it down on the other times and that's it, right? Like that might not be – I might not be being honest with myself about my own feelings of being okay with just once a week. Mm. And so I start manipulating the days that I check in to time it out so that it is casual enough without me seeming too crazy. Right. Um, And those kinds of that. So that particular example, that obsession of, well, if I do it at this time, then it'll be like this. And then that next day when I text, it'll be even more casual. That's very similar to the obsession over drinking or drugs of what time do I need to take this so that I can go to the gala and seem okay so that once I leave the gala, I can get fucked, right? right. Like, So it's that action of like self, you know, wrestling satisfaction. Right. That's a good answer. Um, another one's another two-parter. When I tell people I'm sober, the reaction I think they're going to have is blank. And in reality, it's blank. Mm-hmm. Um. So the the first thing that I always think of because it's it's interesting. Um, so can I answer in two parts actually? Yeah. So the first part of the first part of your answer, there because there are two situations where I the the self reflection of your question really comes into play. One being in the workplace, and the other being on dates. Mm-hmm. Right. So in the workplace, um, I have this preconceived notion that people are going to assume, and in my case. Some of it's right, but they're going to assume that, you know, this is a really fucked up person that does not deserve to be in the room, that does not deserve to do their job, uh, and that is unqualified, right? And uh, I may be a felon, but I have experience in my industry, right? And I'm no longer that person, and I'm also no longer a felon. Um, But it's that preconceived idea that they're going to tell me I'm not qualified and and I'm going to lose respect. Um, or I'm, you know, fired. Mm. That's like the fear, right? Is that like enough people are going to find out that I shouldn't be there uh, and they're going to make me leave. And in reality? And then in reality, um, people are, are tend to be impressed with the fact that I am choosing health um, for, for whatever reasons, mental health, physical health, uh, and, and able to stick to that consistently. Now, now I would imagine though workplace versus a date workplace are going to be much more delicate and not pry into mm-hmm. why exactly you're not drinking unless it's some office party and they're yeah. drunk yeah. right yeah for the most part although my direct boss again knowing in my situation that my boss's boss is a member of my yeah so program and she knows that about him and he's been kind of he's open he's almost open about that he almost eased and paved the way in, in some ways for me where right. he makes it easier for people who are also not 
um, drinking or, or participating to not be seen in any other light other than that's great. That's their choice. And then romantically? And then romantically, the fear is that I'm going to be perceived as not boring. I'm sure there are people who have other thoughts around I mean, it. as boring? Um, yes. Yes. That the, the fear is that this person is going to think, oh, that person is boring. And how could I have fun with that person? And in some ways, I guess that's me putting the idea that all they do for fun is drink, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's my my part there. Um, but there have been times where some girls have been pretty turned off by it or, or just clearly after that bit of information is divulged, they kind of go the other way. And then on the other side, I've probably had more positive reactions. And, and most of the reactions are intrigue, a little bit of curiosity. I really don't get pushed that hard by it. And if I do, it, I usually don't divulge in the first few dates anyway. But the the short answer I kind of give is that like, you know, for a variety of reasons, I stopped drinking and doing drugs. And uh, when I did that, I started to get really happy. And no one's going to really question someone whose answer is, I did this thing and I'm happy now. It's, right. it's kind of hard to combat that. Uh, last one. While I would not necessarily admit this to someone new, the thing about AA that annoys me the most mm-hmm. is what? I'll tell you mine while you think Yeah, about yeah. Yours. Tell me yours. The, the AA is important because of the structure. Right. It's the structure that also annoys me. Mm-hmm. Going to business meetings annoys me. The, uh, the incessant amount of announcements annoys me. Mm-hmm. The number one thing that will bother me, and it happens very rarely, is sometimes uh, AA feel, does feel culty. Mm-hmm. And it feels it's most culty when there's group chanting going on. Mm. And so when this has happened before where they all say the um, preamble together. Yeah, yeah. Nothing sounds weirder than 30 people saying the preamble together. Those are the things that bother me about it. Yeah. No, I, I hear that. I... You know, it's funny. I think almost um, one thing that annoys me is that uh, it's 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 almost different from what you said in that it, there is no actual right way to do this. And sometimes I'll get annoyed when I see someone doing something that I think is not the right way because I didn't do it that way. Mm. And... This is what happens when you usually go like to different meetings around the country, especially. Right. Yeah. And and I'm like, that's not supposed to be said there. Or uh, you should be giving a longer opportunity for anyone that's new to say hello. Mm. Um, or where is the opportunity for someone new? It's just random little things. Um, or even an individual. Just like the way that they insert themselves. I sometimes find myself judging and... and uh, so yeah, the, the almost the fact that there is no there is structure but there almost is no there's no rules. You can't kick someone out. Right. You can't kick someone out for doing it the way that maybe works for them. Last one, and I'll get you out of here. Uh people who are again new, just found this podcast, want to think about getting to 90 days outside of the norms, the go to 90 meetings, read the book, get a sponsor, outside of those things, if you're going to give one or two suggestions mm-hmm. to that new person, mm-hmm. what would you say? A um, couple of suggestions. So one is 
one is just get to the gym. Even if you or or if you can't get to the gym, do something physical. Um, and it doesn't have to be Olympic level sports. You can walk at a fast pace for 45 minutes and listen to music. But physical activity for me really, really connected me, helped me get out of my head. The 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 confidence you start to build in moving your body and trusting your body absolutely enormous at least for me someone who's had multiple back injuries and has been at weak physical points in my life getting back in the gym gave me a a really calm calm moments throughout the day that I kind of needed outside of meetings Um, another I would say is um, you know ask for help It, it I think the biggest growth that we can do as humans is getting to a place where we can start to ask people for help hopefully begin to accept or listen to some of that hope uh some of that help Mm -hmm. um but as i said the first thing when we sat down is like today i'm able to solve a problem at the drop of a hat because all the work that i put in previously to this day allows me to inject myself into just a, a space of asking for help i called my friend a fellow after my sponsor and I just went right into it. I was like, hey, man, I'm just checking in. And he was like, what's up? And I just went into it. And he gave me some advice and I felt great. But like that doesn't happen without the years at this point of me and him building awkward fellowships, going to awkward coffees, getting to know each other and uh, getting to that place. Because I can't even do that with some of my best, best sure. friends who are just aren't in the program who I've known for 20 years. It's hard to just call someone and, and just let out some shit but a guy in the in the but a, a, a fellow in the rooms when you say you need to just check in they're they're there instantly mm-hmm.